0: Hello, hello, hello. You are in for an absolute treat today. I'm interviewing Henry Stewart, who is the founder of Happy, a London based learning provider who has been rated one of the top 20 workplaces in the UK for five consecutive years. And he now helps other organizations create happy workplaces. He possibly has one of the coolest job titles you can imagine, and that is. Chief Happiness Officer. And I mean, it's an amazing title. We've just pressed record and we just let it go. And we talked about some amazing things. One of which was the command and control approach to leadership that a lot of leaders take, especially in crunch time, especially during the pandemic. And you know what? This is what has happened to Henry. He's gone Mm. into that mode, but very quickly realized that it didn't work. So that he needs to go back to... The old way of work are just following the principles that they got at happy. And actually he introduces us to some of the principles, core principles, core beliefs that guide the happy people. We talked about the importance of psychological safety and how to create it, how to hire people into your organization. So how some of the recruitment processes that we've got now are broken. How do we move managers to be coaches? We talked about how to have better meetings, how to celebrate mistakes. So this is what you can expect in the interview with Henry Stewart from Happy. It was an absolute delight having Henry on the show. And I, as always, hope you enjoy it as much as I have enjoyed recording it. Here is my interview with Henry Stewart, the founder and chief happiness officer at Happy enjoy. We Got This showcases individuals and organizations that create people-focused workplace cultures to help it become the norm rather than the exception. It's something that will require a mindset shift and probably not something that any of us can do alone. But together, together, we got this. Nick, hello. Hello there, sir. How are you doing? I'm fine. Good man, good man. Well, (laughs) Thank you for coming along. I love your shirt. Is, is it ducks? Is it hearts? What have you got on there? Little flowers, it's actually.
1: Flowers, flowers. Yes.
0: Okay. Very yes. nice. Very nice. How have you been?
1: I've been grand. This is, you know, we've, we've had a challenging lockdown, but we're now back to the levels we were at before, which is pretty good. We put everything online. and We created, made it interactive and engaging, and people are loving it.
0: That's brilliant. That is a quick pivot. Listen, Will, I'd I'd love to hear a little bit more about it because I've actually been speaking to Hyper Island yesterday. And what we were talking about was was actually quite interesting of what you just mentioned that you had to quickly pivot because everything was um, face-to-face. So you had to pivot to online. And for the past 12, 18 months, you've been designing designing things differently. Now we will start slowly emerging and some clients will probably prefer hybrid, maybe some face-to-face. So it will be a nice mix. But then Because when you design for online, you have to design it differently to -to face-to-face. So initially we were adapting from face-to-face, just kind of reaching into content to fit it online. Now we've been designing in kind of just to fit online. And now we're going to have to do it the whole thing in reverse to a certain extent to design it for the classroom again to a certain extent.
1: Yeah, I mean, that that, that, that bit, the classroom is easy. Online is easy. The challenging bit, which we're going to have to reinvent again, is the hybrid bit. Yeah. Because some of our clients will want some people in the classroom and some people remote. Now, I've done a couple of those, challenging, let me say. Yeah,
0: you know. I can imagine. <laughs> because that's the thing. It's like, but the other thing that happens is you are able to then, I think clients are a little bit more open to, to space it out. I don't want to say drag it out, space it out. Because when it was done just face-to-face, they would say, okay, we've got these two days, let's cram it all in. But yeah. now, they'll be able to to do say, so, Okay, let's do this like half a day session online then in a few weeks time let's get together to kind of facilitate that what we've done before and then in a month's time let's catch up again today. so i think yeah. actually it's beneficial because before they would just cram it into two days job done magic yeah. pill everything's fantastic
1: we know and that's favorite. not the case my favorite one at the moment is something i call productivity blitz mm. so what we do is 15 minutes in the morning for 5 days 15 minutes in the afternoon for 5 days okay. and one productivity tip Day, And of course you could never do that in the classroom because, you know, you couldn't come to the classroom for 15 minutes, but it's, it's hardly, it's hardly adds anything to their day. And the, on the last one, several of them said it was the most productive week in months. So wow. those kind Love of things, that. the kind of things you can do now. And that was from people around the world. You know, you, you,
0: mm, everybody dials it. Well, see, that's, that's the thing that I, I, I despair at hearing what we, that some organizations are going back to completely <laughs> in the office and I'm going, We've made so much progress. Why yeah. undo it all? Go at the very least, give people the hybrid ball. But I'm really happy when I hear people or I hear of situations where employees were told by the companies, we're going back to the office and employees are going, I don't want to, I'd like to go hybrid. Can we can we work something out? Can we work out the arrangements? So they were being showing flexibility and the organizations are going, no, online. And, and sorry, um, okay. going back to the office. And then the people are going, actually, you know what? In that case, here's my notice. And I'm going, yes, power <laughs> to the people for that, because they've got that confidence that if your current employer doesn't offer that, they know that more organizations are so much open, more open to it compared okay. to what it was well, a few months ago, a few, yeah. last year.
1: So I'd happy, I play no role in that at all. It's entirely up to the people themselves in their teams. To decide. So if they've got a course on that day, someone mm-hmm. from the admin team will probably come in and, you know, do something. And some people will say, well, we'll want to stay down. some people want to come in, but it's entirely up to them. Why yeah. should I play a role? Exactly. They know what their responsibilities are. Yeah, Henry.
0: This this goes down to the way you manage your people and the culture that you've got within your organizations. That you yeah. or, that you have that people go like, yeah, fine. I know what to do. I'm an adult, and you know, I'll look after myself. It doesn't matter what what day of the yeah. week uh, I work, what times I work, and will Unless you've Absolutely. got meetings. But that doesn't happen in other organizations. The reason for that is they don't have that culture in the first place. There's a disconnect and managers are basically micromanaging because they don't (laughs) want to get rid of that. They don't want to get, you know, let that control go. And that's the... I
1: was very real surprise when Google said it. Google, for me, is, I know they don't do everything right, but, you know, they are are about giving people freedom and control. And when the Google head said you've got to be, if you if you work at home more than fourteen days a week a year, mm-hmm. you've got to have special permission. I thought, what is going on there?
0: Ridiculous. <laughs> you know? but, well, the, the the latest one I heard is the backlash with Apple. They've announced that they will be going back. They've kind of h- hybrid model, fixed days, and things like that employees, not happy, leaking to the press really? and not happy. They they kind of, it's an ongoing discussion. I only saw a snippet, which is a bit of a clickbait, I think, a few days ago. And it just, and I thought, oh my God, Apple's going back to the offices full time, because that's what the times are suggesting. Yeah. But then when I went, on back, went back to it, I think yesterday, I read that it's, yeah, it's a mixture of work from home, back to the offices, some fixed days and things like that. And the employees are just saying, you know what, we, we want more flexibility. And again, power to them. Because I Absolutely. think that's what we need. Absolutely. We need to move to that model. I was talking to another guest last last week, I think it was, about where we stand on this, that kind of micromanagement element of control, that we are basically no longer work in that element of nine to five, that kind of shift work, mm-hmm. because that's, let's let's face it, that's where it's come from. And the fact is, people no longer work in that set because whatever creative process that happens, the mental process that comes behind any good idea or any type of work, that happens out of nine to five. That happens on weekends. So why mm-hmm. you're only paying people for the 40, 40 hours a week or whatever country you're based in, but they actually work in far more. So why shouldn't they be based and graded and salaried and based on absolutely?
1: But but at the same time, at Happy we're uh, we're big on not working all the time. Mm. You know, so we so we're, we're we're very big. You know, you shouldn't. I should. You shouldn't expect to be contacted in the evening or at weekends mm-hmm. or, or any time like that. Mm-hmm. We're so that. You're in, yeah, you might have buried hours, you know, whatever yeah. they are, but it's not working all the time. Absolutely. No,
0: absolutely not. I'm I'm fully against that. What I meant by working kind of all the time is not being accessible and checking your emails every five minutes on weekends. Yeah. Absolutely not. I'm more talking about the mental process that takes place because if you obviously you're doing your work or during, during the week and then it's natural when you disengage over the weekend what happens there is your brain continues to work at it, whether you want it or not. Right. And you might get, an idea might hit you. So this, again, in my opinion, is an argument for considering people and just talking to people based on results and the work that they do, not the work, not the hours that they work. Yeah, uh, absolutely. But, yes, absolutely. There's still, still a lot of work to do for people to have that self-discipline so they don't feel guilty that they are not working the hours uh, that they used to, because that often happens as well that is like, you know, I need to do work because I, I haven't done that much this week. So I'm just going to log in on Saturday morning, which I think is not a good thing either. Anyway, listen, we already started this. Uh, normally, we have kind we, of have, right. a, have, a, have a bit of a ramp up, <laughs> but we've already kind of got into this, which is which is really cool. I like when it's a natural conversation, and that's how I want these two podcasts to be. And uh, I'll ask you a question that I normally actually start off with, because you used to start this? Yeah, I'm, I'm waiting sta- for
1: the opening question.
0: The, the question is, what did you want to be when you grew up, when you were little? What was kind of that okay. dream?
1: so I've got two answers to this one. Go for it. First was, when I was seven, our teacher asked us what we wanted to be. And we all put ice cream van driver. And the teacher said to me, but Henry, wouldn't you like to be a mathematician? And I was very keen on maths. I thought, what? You can spend all your life doing maths? Is that for real? (laughs) And so from the age of seven, I decided I want to be a mathematician. But then when I got to to, uh, sixth form, I I was using computers to to program them to play games. This was in the days before. Before computers had screens, it was all, you know, on ticker tape and things like that. And I thought, what I want to do is 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 be a programmer that, that makes computers play games. And I went to IBM in my year off before university, and I told them this is, and I told people this is what I want to do. And they said to me, everybody there said to me, Henry, there's no way that anybody will be able to make a living programming computers to play games. <laughs> priceless. <laughs> and so I gave up the idea. Oh, God. <laughs> it's it's
0: like that man, I don't remember his name, is that man who sold his initial shares in Apple in a 1987 or whatever that would be, you <laughs> well,
1: know, would be a Yeah, But be... he was
0: one of the kind of people the early people who started the company. There was he was one of the sort kind of you could classify co founders so he had one of the first employees, he had shares and he just sold it. It's just it's just fascinating how How that happens, but you know the other thing that is, I I can't believe the coincidence. Uh, The other guest that I've mentioned, I was talking to literally a few days ago, Ellen allenroth She said the exact same thing that she wanted to be an ice cream driver. What she would, she wanted (laughs) to sell ice cream. And so, what are the chances? The same, the same answer to the same question, four days apart.
1: Little kids off on what to do, you know.
0: Never heard that before of anyone that they that people wanted it to, to be that way. I kind of get Imagine that
1: Imagine being in the van all day, eating ice cream. Know, have but Henry, like but fun. that's the
0: thing. That the job is not eating ice cream, it's selling it. That's the thing.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> but I always and I said this to Ellen, I always like to um link this to what people do and kind of try and see some sort of pattern to what they do now. And the thing that I arrived with Ellen, and she was actually surprised that that this is some sort of being driven by an idea or a, 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 a hoping to be delivering joy to people, I guess, because I associate ice cream with joy. It's sunny, sunny, happy yeah, days, happy exactly. people walking around in the park, holding, yeah. holding their ninety nines. Right, that's what that's what it is, and it's kind of giving people that happiness. And similar to you, the line of work that you're in now, what you've done with Happy. So, what, what Ellen has done, she's kind of a chief people officer for, for care which is a healthcare organisation in Sweden, and. There is that link. And I always find it fascinating with people in I'll, the line I'll of I'll
1: tell what... you another link. Go One on. thing you won't know about Happy is that at four o'clock every afternoon, we give all our delegates ice cream. So you fulfilled. And you can always, yeah, I fulfilled, fulfilled that dream. And you can always tell who on the staff is here as joined did recently, because they still have ice cream. It was <laughs> <is> the more <laughs> long-standing one's done. I, I spent, I had an ice cream every day for seven years in the first seven years at Happy at that that. Now I have it more rarely.
0: <laughs> oh, priceless. Well, a question, what do you do now when everything's in the online world? Do you send people ice oh, cream?
1: No, that's, that's the thing people often ask when they put out the evaluations at the end of the day and when you ask them, what would be better? They said, if that would had an ice cream, you know, but no, they haven't managed to find an equivalent.
0: But listen, I know there are, there are companies and I know of, of a company based in Poland that actually sells ice cream online. So they've got ice cream shops all over the <laughs> all over the, the country and you can order ice cream delivered providing there is an ice cream shop of theirs in the city where yeah. you live. So you could you could potentially if that's not available in the UK or wherever let's start with the UK. Let's start with a small market. If that's not available yeah. in the UK, his job he is is a is a business I need opportunity to set for
1: you. Don't I yet.
0: You could do it. Yeah, I don't think they, don't, they won't <laughs> ship, but I think... I don't
1: think you actually should set up the ice cream business. Precisely. Like.
0: Se- or, yeah, one or the other, set up, do a subsidiary of Happy in Poland. Give me a shout, I'll help you out. Or the other way around, do an ice cream business that does delivery in the UK.
1: Yeah. I think that's slightly outside our scope. But there we <laughs> A little idea. bit.
0: A little bit. See, I. I, I, I
1: I'm not know you good at? I
0: always say. Yeah, you could. Yeah, but or find find people you can collaborate with who are good at the other thing that yeah. you want to do. So. I, yeah, absolutely. I think this scope there. Listen, I've never thought I'm going to be talking about ice cream on this podcast, but there you go. There's always a first. So we talked about happy. We talked about how kind of you got into what you've, what you, what you're doing, how what kind of how happy's been operating, the challenges that you faced, obviously with 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 the with the pandemic as a as a result of it. And obviously you 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 wrote Happy Manifesto, something that I've been been reading in the past few weeks, and I've made so many notes oh, that it's beyond beyond belief. It's a good PDF, so I don't run into Amazon's. Copyright uh, infringements because of copying and kind of highlighting and exporting so many. You can, so you
1: many can things. download it for free from our website.
0: Yes, yeah. I got, I got so, it off your so website. You
1: don't need to get Amazon.
0: Yeah, didn't go to Amazon, got it from your website. But I tend to highlight a lot and export my highlights to make notes. And there's a, there's yeah. a, there's a you, you, if you do it for Amazon, I think it's 15, 20% of the book, you can't export more because otherwise yeah, you're infringing. Right. So I'm yeah. glad that I've, I've, I've got the PDF directly from your website because there's a lot of highlights that I made, a lot of comments but the the kind of the 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 story that i'm really interested in is obviously you, you describe a bit of a journey that you've been on with happy as well the kind of things that have happened i'm really keen on the the one element that actually made you start happy or kind of you when you realize realize that you've i think you were working for some sort of uh, project where you were given a grant with and and you just kind of within a number of weeks you manage to, to spend the, the money that, for was, those, that was given to you no, for the okay. organization Le, and how old was that?
1: Yeah. Back in the eighties, it was eighties, you know, I was a bit of a left-wing activist and I had, with together with other activists, we decided to set up a national newspaper. We thought, you know, let's stop complaining about the media and start and create some new media. So we created a national left-wing campaigning Sunday newspaper which those in the UK, it was going to be the left-wing equivalent of the Daily Mail. And we raised six and a half million pounds in, in uh, from investors. And you're right, we lost it all. We lost it all in six weeks after launch, which was a bit of a disaster. In fact, the book about it, about the paper, is called Disaster. And what we did was we created a truly awful culture. You know, I, I wouldn't say that we should have, should have hired a bunch of managers and been the journalists on it. But we instead became the managers I and mean, we weren't very good at it. And we created a truly awful culture. And so I left there determined to find out how you create a great workplace culture that is principled and that's an effective place to work. Because I realized while I was there that the, the IBM, which I'd worked on back in my year off was a better place to work than, than news on Sunday. Despite all our fine principles and our ethics and all this kind of thing. So that's been my journey in the 33 years since then to find out how you create a truly great workplace and I'm still learning.
0: I was going to say I was actually going to ask what how, how do you feel how far along that journey are you in terms of figuring that out?
1: I feel we're farewell well on that journey I mean back in a, a few years back we we were in the top 20 workplaces in the UK for five years in a row so I think we've we've got a lot of the key, the key elements of it. And that's what we teach people. You know, that's what we're about nowadays. We start off in IT training, helping people make software enjoyable. And now we, we teach leadership and management and how to create a truly happy workflow.
0: See, that's, it's, it's taken you this many years to kind of get to this point and you obviously you learn throughout that and you put some really cool, uh, and useful tips and principles in your book, which by the way, I'll, there'll be links to, to that book for everybody to download it. And it's one of those books that you definitely have to read because obviously you've got that, you had that foundation and you, that's kind of that, that moment where you realized that's where you're going to devote your time to. Uh, and you've put yeah, those I learning.
1: I knew how to create a truly awful workplace, <laughs> but the question was how you turn that around into creating a truly great workplace.
0: See, the, the segment I like to often have on, on the podcast is asking people genuinely what they've messed up, what they didn't go according <laughs> to plan, because it's I'm all for celebrating wins. And, you know, it's, it's fantastic. We need to do that probably a lot more than we do. But the real learnings come from the, the, the times where we got things wrong, when we, where we failed one way or another, or we just didn't foresee a consequence of what we're going to do. Things got, you know, the world changes, things get derailed, things fall over. Mm-hmm. That's where the biggest learning comes from. And that's actually what I would like to really focus on. And in in your time. In your journey to creating this, or the, the 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 happy workplace, with happy or with your clients, what are some of the real proper moments where you've failed or where you learned the most from something that has gone wrong? You've mentioned the first in the foundation with the being the left the left wing activist where you've just in six six weeks you blew uh, several million pounds. What are the, some of, some of the other learnings that got you to where you are now?
1: Well, there's lots. So yeah, that that one is a pretty, you know, that, that normally beats most people from stage. That, that one does, the six and a half million. There was the time when I I sacked someone and told them to leave that day. Okay. Now, that was back, I think it was back in 96 or something. But that was what had happened to me once. You know, and that's what I thought you did if, you know, somebody wasn't performing. But it caused huge problems with, with other people. And even 10 years on, there were people who were still saying, why did you get rid of David? And after that, we decided, okay, you know, let's have some concerns for, our people for these people, even if they're going. So so now what we do is, if if we get to that point, we give people three months or so to find another job. And, and, and we don't, you know, sack them on the day and make them miserable we try and our core principles we help people feel good about themselves that's one of our our five core principles and so we do that also with people who are leaving unless it's at you know unless they've stolen something or something like that but so so that was one key lesson treat the people who are leaving well and the other advantage of that is of course is when they leave well they will think good they'll think well of you Whereas whereas as david back in 96 probably you know Hate hated not tell all his friends. There's another one more recently where actually at the beginning of the pandemic, so at the beginning of the pandemic, yeah, we, we'd we lost 95% of our work, our classroom courses. Things looked pretty desperate, and I started, you know, I, the people said, oh, this is a time for leadership. This is the time when you have to start, you know, doing command and control or whatever. And so for a couple of weeks, I did that. I started tell, I told people what to do. I... It, the, you know I, I got very involved, I took in decisions and all sorts of things, and it didn't work. <laughs> it didn't work at all, and after that, I very fortunately got coached by somebody and suddenly realized this was the opposite of my approach. It was stressing me out and having a bad effect. so after that, I stepped back and allowed people again to have their freedom and their trust and people. And the, the growth in happy over that period has been thanks to that because you know what I was saying to do actually half of it made no isn't what the clients wanted. I'm not actually that much in touch with our clients, right? You know, many of our many of our people speak to their clients, speak to our clients several times a day, more than that. I might speak to them maybe once or twice a day. They know what the clients need, they know what they want, and they were able to put in, in in place courses which really met the clients' need. Once I stepped back. Once I stopped being involved in, you've got to make this new course and that kind of thing. So that was, a, that was a key lesson, which I should have made years ago, because it's the core principle of happy that you give people trust and freedom. But it's even the case in a sudden pandemic when it looks like the world is crashing and you're, you're about to go bankrupt.
0: I'm pretty certain there are a number of business owners, CEOs, senior leaders in many organizations that went into that command and control mode. Since you went into that, why was it, what was the kind of motivation? What was the thinking behind you that kind of just pushes that? This is what I need to do.
1: Well, it was kind of, can't you see how terrible this is? is? Can't you see, you know, we've got to, we've got to move instantly. We've got to do this, we've got to do that. And of course, some people later, we, we adopted a core principle, which actually comes from, from like the Ken, Canadian federal agency, which is recognized that, that some people are going to find this difficult. Just yes, because you're doing okay doesn't mean they're doing okay, and you might find it difficult. Just yes, because other people are doing okay doesn't mean you're doing okay. And we started to recognise that that it's about checking in on people, not checking on people. It's about yeah, listening to people, listening to how they are, supporting them, helping them find their own solution. I mean, our, our role is as leaders is to coach people. So it, that's so. I think I just fell back to the old ways, I and mean, I was in a complete panic. You know, I. My wife tells this story of how she was on, on, on a session with her colleagues and she heard all these shouting going on from upstairs I and her IT person said, look, I, I can, I can do all sorts of technology, but I can't cope with shouting hospitals. <laughs> and then what I was, what I was talking to was someone at the Bank of England who had, uh, I can't remember how i got in contact with him, but at that time we didn't have furlough and we had just had loans. I was so angry about the fact they would do nothing to help the British economy. Whereas people like Denmark were providing, providing income and... Yeah, I was, I was angry and stressed. But three days later, they brought him further. So, hey, maybe that was something to do with me having that angry conversation.
0: <laughs> you, you never know. You never know. But see, the, the thing I, I see in this story is you had a normal, what I would call a normal human reaction. The world is pretty much crumbling around us or very much being shaken. We don't know what to do. And I think a lot of people will find it, found themselves and will find themselves in the future in see similar situations. And that's where we do tend to go into this command control, especially if we can, say, this is a, I know I do that. So I worked on many projects. I'm a project manager by trade. As soon as the project was starting to go a little bit pear-shaped, that's when I would step in and say, this is what we need to do. And I think it's that because I found some comfort in the fact that, okay, at least now if things go wrong. I can say it was my fault that I done it wrong, not that somebody, you know, missed a deadline, didn't deliver the quality and things like that. So I think that's, now I'm reflecting really on the fly why I did, did, did used to do that. But it's, I think it's in, that, in a way a natural instinct that a lot of business owners, especially business owners, because obviously you own your business, It's it's literally your baby. It's something that you're very emotionally, Attached to, I think it might be different if you're a CEO that comes into an organization that it, for them is just a job. Yes, I'm not questioning that they don't have that commitment and they, that connection, but I think it's different when you've nurtured it from the start, when you've built it from the ground up.
1: It is, that's probably true, and it is my baby. It's taken a lot of time to, to, yeah. The other, the other thing. Let me, let me explain another one. Then another one uh, well, back back in 2017, I I was still involved in, in taking in decision making and things like that happy and and I went uh, I spoke at a conference in Copenhagen from Woohoo, who are a company over there. And I was speaking with on this platform was David Marquette. Do you know David Marquette? US Navy submarine commander who took charge of the submarine and because he wasn't submarine he would be trained for, found he couldn't tell people what to do. So instead, he decided to make no decisions apart from the one pressing the the, the the torpedoes. Apart from that, he would make no decisions. And that submarine became the best performing submarine in US Navy history. And I heard that and came back to happy. And I, th- I think it took us some months, but I came back to happy. We were doing, we were flatlining. We were making a loss. We weren't doing well. And the managing director at the time left. And you might think I found that I would then get more involved. But learning from David, I decided, no, I will. Uh, leave this to people to take responsibility. And I said, I won't even replace the manager director. If you see some of these roles that you want to take on, take them on. And since then, I've tried to make no decisions I'm Happy. And the result was three years of 20% growth and a big return to profit because people were stepping up and taking real responsibility and real ownership. And however much in the past I've talked about trust and freedom and you know, everybody's got account, everybody's got responsibility. It was clear that actually making that decision to make no decisions made a real difference. And I've done it with other CEOs, and all of them, when they've I've asked them to make no decisions for three months, and all of them have reported that KPIs increase, their, their staff feel happier, all these kinds of things. So I recommend to that to any CEOs on this call and to senior leaders make no decisions. That's controversial to a lot of people
0: (laughs) shocking (laughs) and that's exactly that is the question that I've got for you why are so many people so tight-fisted when it comes to this that they would find it so so difficult to to make no decisions where where is that coming from do
1: you think coming from you know when I you know I had it a lot of the time you know it's coming from I believe I'm I'm very clever I believe I'm good. I, you know, I'm. I'm. I, I. I think you just have what you to do now. are we doing that. But let's. You know, I'm very clever and make the best decisions. It's taken me 30 years to realise, and partly because people are close to the foot line, but partly they did some of them a better answer things than me. So let me give you an example. John and Ben decided our prices needed to be needed to change to be increased. So you may be aware of the advice process. I don't know if you are, but the advice process is where one or two people take responsibility, take advice from lots of people but then make the decision themselves. So this isn't about consensus. It's about one or two people having responsibility and deciding. And they took advice from me and ignored it <laughs> and increased the price because that was their responsibility and we decided that was their responsibility. And it's a classic case where I'm not the best person to make decisions. Cause I've been in this business for 33 years. I remember what prices were like in 1990. And so prices nowadays seem completely out of sync with where they were, (laughs) but they compared, they looked at the market, they looked at uh, what's going on and that was a key part of of helping us improve those sales, you know, a decision I would have blocked if I had been, if I had been in charge of decisions.
0: The decision-making process that often creates bottlenecks. And as I said, I really like the fact how you've described the process, which, which says they are not seeking consensus. The uh, research yeah. and their response to make decision and this is where a lot of organizations go wrong that decisions are made by consensus and this is a massive bottleneck. but I've got a question for you okay, so you you would have said no to the price increase yeah but uh, obviously they were they they ignored you, yeah. as, you and as you admit <laughs> rightly so it worked out. What happens at happy when things don't go well that you say you would you 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 would have if it was your decision, you would have vetoed it, you would have blocked it. And it turns out actually you you were right, or or that it wasn't it didn't
1: go as expected. What happens there? Then the people responsible take responsibility. So if the price increases had meant that nobody was booking, then it would have been their responsibility to do something about it. And they did with some clients, some long term clients. You know, did get some did get their some some prices reduced on that. So it's it's trusting that the people are able to make the right decision. And once they've made them to adjust for whatever's needed, do you trust your people or don't you? That's the question.
0: Very true. Very true. I know where we kind of, where we, where we agree to talk about certain things. We're bouncing around a few topics. I really, really like, and the thing I like about what you've mentioned is the fact that you, you have to trust your people, but a lot of organizations are kind of, as I said, really tight fisted when it comes to that. And they they do go into that command and control for different, different reasons. You know, when you decided not to, not to make any decisions, because I think yeah. what will resonate with a lot of business owners, a lot of team leaders to, who want to try that is how badly were you itching to make decisions and how did you stop yourself from not getting involved?
1: I'm not sure how badly I will. I mean. Oh, is
0: that a question I should ask you or are the people working at Happy?
1: You should. You should ask them, them. You should certainly ask them. I mean, when I did, I mean, it isn't a matter of you just go off and go on the golf course or anything. It's, it is, you set the framework. So let me give you one example of that. We're a training business, right? And there's two key elements in, in the metrics that we need. One is how happy the clients are, right? So all of our trainers are focused on how happy clients are at the end of the day. But there's also training utilization. What is crucial to the profitability of the business is that trainers are fully utilized. So, and that isn't one they tend to look at. Right. So in in the old days, that that old managing director would send them a report every three months about how the utilization was. So one thing I did say, I said, okay, at the end of every month, I want you to calculate your training utilization. Right. I'm not going to set your target, but I just want you to calculate it. And as a result of that, that's that single act of them calculating every every, um, month, meant that the cost of the trainer in the cost of the course went from 42% to 29%. And that alone made £100,000 increase to our profit. So, so I wasn't telling them anything. I was just asking them to measure something. And once you measure something, there's only one way you want it to go. You want it to improve. So part of my role is to spot the key metrics that need to be measured. To make sure the framework is there, that people are being coached rather than told what to do. These kinds of things are the kind of role that I do. And the other bit is I get to do the fun, fun stuff of creating new products. That's what I love doing.
0: Obviously you, you mentioned frameworks, but before you mentioned a couple of core principles that you've got a happy that I actually really like too, that you've mentioned. Can you share with us some of the other principles that you, you have a happy that guide, and I'm pretty sure facilitate and help the process of people just being able to do their own thing without you getting involved?
1: Absolutely. And People often refer to these principles because they're so, so one is delight the customer. Now that's fairly obvious, but it's, it's, it's delight, not satisfy the customer. Delight the customer. So people often think, think talk, you know, what would delight this customer? And that's, that's a a key question that happens at happy. And if something goes wrong, then the aim is to over respond to it, to to fully delight them. There is make everyone, make everyone feel good about themselves. That's both your, your colleagues. And the client, and that's even if you're, going, if you're tackling something tough. You know, say something's somebody's not performing, whatever. The aim is always to leave them feeling good about themselves, because people work best when they feel good about themselves. That's a, that's a that's a, a core core element. What else have we got? Believe the best of people. So it may look like somebody is messing up, or is 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 doing something wrong or whatever, but believe the best. Think, you know, if a client, you know, cancels a course or something or does something else or is Behaving provocatively, believe the best. Then what is going on to that? Celebrate mistakes. That's a key principle. When I found it happy, my key mentor told me, go make mistakes. And I've made plenty. And the thing I often ask is, do we want mistakes? Do we want mistakes? No. What do you reckon?
0: I, I would say we do, but we need to Absolutely. learn from them.
1: Absolutely. If somebody came to me at the end of the probationary period after three months and said, I've been here three months and I've made no mistakes, what would you think?
0: Probably didn't try hard enough.
1: Yeah, either they were lying or they didn't try hard enough. We don't want that. I one of the things I, I know people love about working at Happy, they've told me, is that if they try something, take risks, and it goes completely wrong, they know we will celebrate that that mistake. And so that's that is key to innovation, ensuring things go well, and to having a no-blame culture. And the other the fifth one is make a difference in the world. So one of the things we did in the, the last year was we gave, we've given 800 free places to NHS staff, okay? Now, there's a couple of reasons for that. One of those reasons is that back last March, NHS staff couldn't get money for anything unrelated to COVID. So if they wanted to come on a course, there was no way they could get it. And in things like liberating Structures, we can talk about in a moment, they, they, this would be really helpful to how they were working. But the other element of that is I was in those early days, we were getting nobody on our courses. And I just wanted to teach something. I just wanted to be able to have a class of twenty or thirty people and be able to teach something. So it meant both our needs. That you know, a it was it was it was helping them B, it meant I could actually you know we could actually create those vibrant courses that have that have that have worked for us ever since.
0: That is an amazing initiative. I, that initiative. I didn't realise that you did that. I I, I understand. The kind of mutual benefit of, of this I've worked with the NHS for many, many years in my pharmaceutical days as a, as a project manager and marketing for, for them. So, and actually my role for them was creating opportunities, study days and conferences for them to come and learn. And the core principle of, of those events was it was not for the organization to make because it didn't it was an expense yes we were getting business out of it as a result because it was a net networking uh, opportunity but the core principle so well, there was never product mentioned the the company's product it was fully fully educational in the 6 years i was there we got it from first event had 40 people just under 40 people the la- the last event i ever organized had 200 people on it over the six years that 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 i i did that inadvertently the organization became known in the 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 nhs sphere that it was responsible as a training provider not as a pharmaceutical provider which is which is it's so so funny, but at the same time, it shows how important that element of training to the NHS is. So I'm, I'm really delighted that that's uh, to hear that you, that's what you did with the, with the NHS as well. I really love the celebrating mistakes uh, principle that you mentioned. However, I've got a couple of issues with that. Doesn't that give people the opportunity just to kind of go, yeah, I made a mistake, whatever. Have that attitude of, eh, doesn't matter. So they actually don't value that and just take a bit of a kind of laid back, too too, too too much of a laid back approach. How do you, what does celebrating mistakes actually look like in practice at happy?
1: Okay. So yeah, if somebody say turns up late every day, that's not a mistake. That's that bad timekeeping <laughs> or oh, whatever. But let me give you an example of, uh, this is a trainer who still remembers this. This was about 10 years ago, who was, I was... It was training a course that went badly and all our facilitators know that they need to come into the office to let the admin staff know. I was nearby and he said, I, I, and I went up to him and asked, okay, tell me about the course. And he said, oh, it, it went so badly. I didn't prepare well enough. I didn't, I didn't learn the stuff. And when it, when it, the course happened, I got defensive and I, I didn't deal with them well. And I gave a big hug and said let's celebrate. Now I didn't say, what have you learned from it? I'm quite happy that he'll go away and, and do that with someone else. But notice, what, what, what was key to his response? How did he respond to my question? He responded by taking full responsibility. You can't celebrate a mistake that somebody doesn't acknowledge. He said, yes, it was my fault. That you can then celebrate. And, then, and he, still, he still remembered that years years later that, that, that we'd that done that for him. And that's the kind of thing we celebrate. So if somebody comes to me and says, "I made a total mistake." I do say, or well, somebody would say, "Okay, how many people have been killed?" And "Which I'd happy nobody has at other places." But any of you know about, about Amy Edmondson and her psychological safety? So psychological safety is about creating a no blame environment. And Amy Edmondson started it by working hospitals on a PhD study, and she she found that the teams that had the most drug errors. Right? She looked at which teams had the most drug errors, and she found the teams that had the most drug errors were the same teams who were most effective. Now, you might expect that to be the opposite. The teams with the most drug errors were the least effective. No, they were the most effective teams in the, in the hospital. And she, she, at first, she didn't have done this. Then she went back and realized that what, they would do, what was happening was they, were, they had enough psychological safety to be able to report the errors. So if they got a drug wrong and went away and thought, oh my goodness, you know. They could immediately report it and deal with it. Whereas the people in the, in the culture, in the teams we blame thought, Oh God, do I report it? What would happen? Oh, you know. So even in somewhere like the NHS, where you can kill people, if you make mistakes, the importance of psychological safety and no blame culture.
0: Listen, I could not agree more with you that about psychological safety, the, it's so important and one of the key things that's missing and you, you can you can see that straight away within within minutes from walking into an organization or a workshop meeting just how people interact and how open they are yeah, absolutely. To sharing certain things i purposely asked that question about celebrating we say well what that looks like because many organizations do say oh we celebrate mistakes we you know we've got tolerance tolerance <laughs> for failure and okay that's great my follow-up question for, to that is but you have intolerance of incompetence, which is what you started off with by saying, if somebody turns up late to work every day, that's not a mistake. That is, for yeah. whatever. Is, there might again, there might be reasons why they're turning up late. So again, come following with the principle yeah, you said, always, be, be, always believe, always the believe they're, right, they're the best in people. There might be something that's happening outside of work. That they're just not yeah. ready to share yet, that it's impacting the fact. So again, it's taking that into consideration, not just assigning blame or incompetence or whatever. Love the bit of, about taking ownership. But I think that's one thing that is also missing from general interactions throughout the day in our, our, yeah. our lives, not just at work. Just take ownership for, for your stuff where you've made mistakes, where you haven't done something or actually when you've done something. Because we often kind of shy away from, from that. And then just being, because we don't like to brag, which I think it's a culture that we also have a, have a bit of a problem with. This, have you heard of Extreme Ownership by Jacko Willick?
1: No, I don't know that one.
0: American Navy SEAL. There's a tech talk that he did. And he basically has gone into leadership training and following his Navy SEAL. He's very, he, he's, he's tough, tough to listen to because he's very kind of no-nonsense approach, direct, typical Navy SEAL. And it's actually useful, but can be a bit of a shock when you listen to him. So he's not for everybody. He also does have a podcast where some of his episodes are literally three and a half hours long with conversations, <laughs> which is just insane. But they are, they are really, really good.
1: But I bet you talked about incompetence. If, if you why have you recruited them if they're incompetent?
0: Th- that's the other thing. How do you recruit people to, s- to screen for that? Because let's face it. A lot of the recruitment processes I would say are massively broken. Because we recruit the wrong, the wrong people based on the wrong things, and we we have a standard process. I hate interviews, and I hated interviews when I was back when I was interviewing the four organisations. Set number of questions asked to every single candidate, and everybody said, there. "There's yeah. no kind of where's the human in that element? Where Absolutely. is that?"
1: So we so we believe in not asking questions in interviews. How do you do your interviews then? <laughs> we get people to do the job. Interesting. Tell me more. So here's, here's another example I got wrong. And I got everyone this year, in fact, even after 33 years, we've been recruiting for online facilitators and we, we, we did it very rushed. We did it very suddenly and we, we, we got them in and we, they, they, we, we got them in, we get people in groups of six, right? We want to see them interact. One of our key criteria is that they're positive and supportive of us. I have no interest in asking them, when have you been positive and supportive? I want to see them being positive and supportive, right? So we got them in groups of six, and then they trained us. And what I realized at the end of it was they had no idea what we were looking for. You know, we I do believe that we have got the most engaging and interactive online courses anywhere, certainly in the UK and, probably on, and possibly on the planet. And they had no way to know that. And then we ended up frustrated. They ended up frustrated. They probably won't recommend us to anybody else. So we then ran it again. And this time I gave a one-hour one presentation on how to deliver great training, the happy way. Okay. And then we did, we had a first round with just five minutes and then a second round with 20 minutes. And I actually wrote a blog on on LinkedIn and three of the candidates wrote in, wrote in the comments, how much they'd appreciated, including one that was rejected at the first round, because... They actually, all, they got to learn something. They got to understand how we did things. When they then presented to us, it was so much better. And, and we were able then, then to recruit, where we couldn't uh, very well the first time. So, so get people to do the job in the interview. Have lots of collaborative, get lots of people from, from happy to be at the interviews because the more people you get, the more diversity you'll get, but, but stop asking questions,
0: please. I'm all for that. However, I will ask a question now, is when you've got more technical roles. <laughs> you're allowed to ask one. Fantastic. If you've got get more to, technical get, roles. Get them
1: to solve techy stuff.
0: So actually for, you actually, you, you give them case studies to solve. Yeah, that, that, that's what I thought. Because obviously there's an element, I, I work with a lot of tech companies. They 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 hire a lot of developers. They need to check for the the, yeah, the levels of them, knowledge.
1: Get them to solve a problem or do a new piece of code or something like that. Why Why would you do anything else?
0: But then, how do you how do you do the other elements of making sure that they kind of fit with the culture that you've got at an, an organization? That's
1: where you that's where you bring them in groups of six, and get them to and get and see what they're like. So, one of the companies I love is is, is Next Jump. Do you know, I've Next heard Jump? of them?
0: Heard of them? Love them.
1: Okay, so they, as they say, they in the, in the two thousands hired a bunch of very skilled jerks, right? Who, who were paying to deal with because they did only look at the programming. Okay. And you're quite right to ask them more. Now they hire on humility and they look for, and yeah, some of that is, is they do ask questions. So they will ask, ask about a project. And if you say it was all about you, they won't hire you. If you say, well, it was so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so, they, they, they will be more likely to hire you. So yeah, hiring on your humility, hiring on the pros on being positive and supportive of others, you get people to work together to see how they work.
0: Does Next Jump still have the policy that you cannot be fired for
1: performance related issues? I believe they do. Yes, they do. Because C- their, their, their founder was asked by, said, We're a family. And somebody said to, said to him, You know, well, how come you're firing it? Would you fire beef from your family? And he went away and thought about it and decided that no, he wouldn't. So, yeah, that's their, that's their policy.
0: I love. I love that. I've uh, read one of my favorite books is *And Everyone Culture*, where yeah. they are featured alongside two other American companies. Fascinating read. Such a good read, and that's why I've learned most of my about mostly about Next Jump as well. The the thing that you mentioned about family, there's another one. I think it's Barry Waymiller. I think they're a manufacturing organization in the U.S. where their CEO treats people. He doesn't. He doesn't believe in headcounts. He considers this, uh, heart counts. So it's the same in the same vein of what you said that you wouldn't fire somebody from your own family. So by doing it, considering people's hearts rather than their, considering the headcounts, it's you kind of closer, you're connected to them as a result. And they were, when they were going through some, I think it was 2008 issues, digital manufacturing that they lost most of their business. He, they introduced this policy that they will have to lay people off. And how, how, how did they do that? And so they, they came up with the idea of a mandatory leave that people would have to take a month off unpaid leave, but that would prevent mass layoffs. And when they introduced the idea, uh, what started happening is people started sharing, started swapping. Some people said, "Actually, so I've you know I've got another income in the household. I don't need to take that much time off, so I'll take a month and a half off. So somebody else only has to take a half half a month off, and things like that." And it was the kind of the trading that happened that just really brought the team together, and they've survived as an organisation. That's fantastic mm, case study as well that I, I suggest people to 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 look into. Right, there's been a couple of questions, well, quite a few actually, that were asked by the the listeners, because I did mention to, to people on the mailing list, listen, Henry's coming on. Here's your opportunity to pick, pick his brain. So you have uh, in the Happy Manifesto, many suggestions, many rules, many kind of principles that organizations can use. How do you prevent what I call the Toyota supply chain issue from happening? Because everybody copied Toyota in the last 20, 30 years did basically copy and paste and things are failing now. Actually, we needed, it's been most visible during the pandemic where the supply chain has been so disrupted because what happened is that it was just the kind of the surface rules that were taken from Toyota and not the actual culture and some of the principles beyond the below the surface Absolutely. that make it work. How do people avoid taking what you put into happy, the happy manifesto and not just kind of basically making sure that it doesn't happen to them, that they fail?
1: That's a very good point. And my natural answer is to say, come on our courses, then you'll learn how to do it properly. So we, we have some fabulous ones. Except so from a book, you can hopefully pick up some stuff. And some people have picked up an awful lot from it. I was, there's one guy who rang me and said, can, you, can we meet for coffee? I've read your book. And I said, yeah, let's let's meet up. And he told me that he'd read the book, put it all into practice, and had entered the Sunday Times list and, and come top. And I thought... And it, and that's why I didn't buy anything from us. I didn't even buy the books be gave beginning. But I, I love that. I love that some people do that. But you're right. In some organizations, you know, you can't just put in place a couple of the things. Like, like one of our key things is pre-approval. The idea that instead of coming back for approval, you approve somebody in advance with guidelines. So, I mean, that my classic example, which is in the book, and those who've heard me before will know this one, but it's our cafe coordinator who uh, was 19 years old and she wanted to improve the cafe. And she, instead of saying, give us a proposal and we'll look at it, or let's form a committee, we said, here's the budget, let's think about the chick, you understand how happy looks and feels, and then left her to decide for herself. And I thought it was the first time when it had been implemented, when it was done. But just think, Alec, like, how do you think that 19-year-old, three months into her first job, felt walking into her cafe each morning? Absolutely proud and felt a real sense of ownership in it. So pre-approval, I always say pre-approval is, is, is the first step. But my colleague Nikki said to me, hang on, Henry, what you don't understand is that not everyone has the level of psychological safety we have at Happy. And actually, if you tell somebody pre-approval and they're going to get blamed for the result, they will just be terrified. So yes, there is a, a whole picture. You need psychological safety in the organization. You need managers who are, not, who are not experts who tell people what to do, but instead coach their people. You need the concept of playing to people's strengths. You need all of these in place. You can't just pick one of those. You can't just pick the peer approval and think all the rest of not matter. So for instance, we're often asked by, by clients to come in and facilitate a session on resilience for their people. And we we'll often look at the organization and say, hang on, what's management doing here? Because they're basically saying, we've got toxic management. We'd like our people to be more resilient. And we say no to that. We say, no, unless you let us train your management, then we weren't, we're not going to facilitate assessment and resilience for your people because actually there's no point if got, if you've got a toxic work environment. So it is genuine that actually many some organizations, you really get it. So like I was talking to, I went into the boardroom of a charity and along the, along the wall, they had 13 best workplace awards, Right. And you might think, well, that means they don't need me. But actually I thought, great. These people get it. And I gave my talk and a week later, the chief executive wrote and said, these are the eight things we have done as a result of your talk, which have made a difference in our organization. So some organizations absolutely get it and can put these things into practice. Some, you know, listen to a talk and haven't quite got around to organizing a meeting to think about it two months later, you know, and they and I don't know, I guess they're the kind of people who do need the, the program, but, but the programs work. You know, they help transform organisations.
0: They for sure, though, right. and actually, it's, it's it's quite funny. You're right that the organisations that you walk into, they say, well, "Wow, how can I help them? They're already doing things in such a great yeah, way." They're the ones who get it. They're ones that get in such a joy working with organisations like that, where you actually yes. spend more time. thinking of what you can do different where you can do better how you can go to the next level rather than having to use a sledgehammer to get rid of some of the concrete that is you know things are setting in in these organizations which is an important thing and actually again power to organizations who want to get rid of that concrete you have to start somewhere and it's such an important such an important point that you know no, it's, 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 uh, the saying that I like is, I think it goes, uh, start big or small, doesn't matter as long as you start. And it's with the organizations <laughs> working on the culture is exactly the same thing. You know, it's that first, have that first workshop. I'm always in two minds when, you know, also you mentioned the organizations that you've worked with. You've done a meeting with them, you've done a program with them, with them and they're taking two months to, to do a follow-up, to, to kind of action some of that stuff. That, that's happened. And I'm always in two minds by organizations who do do that. It's like, okay, yes, I will help you out, but you still have to take that ownership. You still have to do take it to the next level. Yeah. Sometimes that's, that's, a... why
1: on, yeah, that's why on our four-day program, we don't do it in four days. We do it over three months, so that we so that they have to come back and report on what they've done. You know However. and uh, and you know and you help to hear all the peers and what they've done and you you have to have something to present
0: okay another question that was sent in i'm guessing somebody who must have listened to luke kites interview a few weeks ago as well about the the main change that you've introduced that kind of rendered delivered the best results into the organization for luke i think it was that he they started treating people as adults which i'm pretty certain is as a result (laughs) of reading the happy manifesto and i i absolutely love that but i guess my question to you is over over the years working let's just limit to narrow it down to to happy one of the the things that you've introduced at happy big or small doesn't matter but which one do you think had the biggest impact on on the organization on the company culture and the people in it
1: Okay. I think it has to be moving managers to be coaches because that role of being an expert, telling people what to do simply doesn't work. And, you know, and we've had, we've had managers who did that. We had one manager who we lost three people because of until we realized what was going on. So the key change is that your role as a manager is not to tell people what to do. It's to build their confidence, ask questions and help them find their own solution. And as long as that is, that is the role. It's the role that Google found in Project Oxygen was the role of the manager to be a great coach. And that's the biggest difference, I think, that over the 30 years, which is something I never, never saw at the start because that isn't the way we're expected to, but it is increasingly becoming the way that organizations work, where I'm glad to say. So for all you out there, if your manager is your role to coach, and if you've been managed, is that the role play, that your, your, your manager is, is taking? Or maybe you're self managing that would be even better.
0: That's the other thing. I think this kind of goes in a bit full circle. to what we started off with, the with managers holding on to that control and, and having that lack of trust in people that they will be able just to do their job and, and considering them as just focus on the, 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 the results that they deliver. I think you've mentioned when we, we, have, when we spoke before, is something around the, the people should be able to choose their own managers.
1: Oh Well, obviously.
0: Tell me more. How do you <laughs> think that works?
1: Well, okay. So let's say somebody comes to you and says, I love my job. I love the people I work with. I'm even happy with what I'm being paid, but I can't stand my manager. Okay. What normally happens in most organizations, people, pe- pe- people will leave. People leave managers. They don't leave organizations. So what we do is simply what we use. Well, be are coaches, but what we do is we simply say, who would you like instead? So, and then we let people, people should be able to choose their managers. And if your manager is a coach rather than, a hierarchical, whatever, then it becomes really easy. And we've done that with one large public sector organisation where 600 people are now choosing their own managers. And they, they, yeah, they're, they're, the people say it's enabled me to gain control of my career. I, I can't see why you would have an organisation where you don't choose your managers. Can you think of any reason?
0: No, other than because we've—that's how we've done it for the past, god knows how many decades which is something that most organizations cling on to. That's because we've done it this way and why should we change?
1: Yeah, it's it just, to me, makes absolute obvious sense. I couldn't imagine doing it any other way. If anybody has got any other, any reason why you, why, you shouldn't have to choose your own manager. Please send them in. I'd love to hear it because I can't think of it.
0: There well, is a call to action for all the listeners. Please, please do send in uh, your comments and suggestions why you shouldn't do that. See, the, the thing I often mention is, and something I very, very deeply believe, is the fact that we are, and as I said, the, the reason why a lot of people don't change is because the argument is because we've done it so in such a way for so many years. And that's where a lot of the business practices that we use are up until now, relics from decades ago, they worked yeah. for different times, yeah. they developed during the times, and that was fine. And it's not vilifying them, but they just don't work. They haven't adapted. But being able to choose your own manager is one of them, which for, for a lot of organizations will be extreme. But the other thing that we just we just spoke about at the start yeah. was also... Extreme?
1: O- what? Why extreme?
0: Again, I believe because that control. I, Henry, I definitely on your side (laughs) with this. It's just in in absolute
1: insanity why we cling on to so many things. Let me tell you, I did I did a forethought talk on this on major 15 minutes on why she choose her own manager, and I got lots of feedback, and I got lots of people saying, "Oh, it could never happen here," but I got nobody saying it wasn't a good idea. Not one person.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's always, it's often that reaction wouldn't work my company. Uh, yeah. I think there's somebody who you mentioned that a few minutes ago that somebody pointed out to you that certain organizations don't have a lot of the, the prerequisites, let's call them, that happy does, the psychological safety, the openness and things, I like that to introduce these things. And I think yeah. that's where uh, potentially answering the question, my own question I've asked um, a while back was people take the, the copy and paste approach to your principles They try and start them at their organizations, but they don't have those prerequisites and that's why they
1: fail. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So someone like Luke, you know, again, initially he didn't, he didn't, um, we did, we did later facilitate coaching for him, but initially he just read the book and put it all into practice and it just worked. And because again, they had the kind of dynamic organization that
0: could make it work the, the the chat with Luke that I that we had was just a fascinating listen it was such a fascinating it was, one of the, it was the first episode where I thought yeah we're, we're meant to be talking for about 45 minutes because that's the usual length of the episodes and I'm going I'm not going there's no chance we can get this done so I just <laughs> let it run and we, we, I think we talked for about an hour and a half Henry what have you got going on because you mentioned obviously the happy has gone through a transformation the, the last 12 months because of everything that's been going on you had to shift uh, your kind of your programs and how you deliver them and so on and so forth so what has the next two months three months or the rest of the year lined up for you and yes by the way this is an opportunity to plug away anything that happy does <laughs> and i'll be more than happy the, to include all the links to whatever you mentioned in show notes
1: Okay, so there's a few there's a couple of things I'm personally involved in. One is we are what I call the happy MBA. Now it's not a real MBA because it's had to be university accreditation. But what this is is 20 months where you'll get to learn all the happy concepts, trust and freedom, psychological safety, all of this kind of thing, and able to put it into practice in your organization. And if you're in the if you're in England, it's fully it's pretty fully funded. If you pay the apprenticeship levy, it's fully funded from that. If you don't, it's 95% funded what? by the government. Wow. So you can have a 20-month program as a senior leader for £700 if, if you don't pay the apprenticeship levy. And you, what you'll get in that is you'll get to experience, you get really to learn all of these ideas and be able to put them directly into practice. And we've got the first one just started a couple of months ago. I've got 30 people on it, and we've got another one starting in September. So that, that's, that's the thing I've been putting all my effort into because it's a real realization of everything that we've achieved and been able to fund it through a friendship levy makes it really attractive for people. I'm also, I also, do you know liberating structures? Are you ever at meetings like where one or two people dominate?
0: Quite often. Yes.
1: Yeah. Okay. So liberating structures, well, let me, say the phrase I love, which actually comes from Google is beware of hippos. Do you know what a hippo is? Any ideas, it's not. I'm not talking about a swamp, swamp based African animal. What do you think it might mean? Beware of the highest-paid person's opinion. Okay? Oh, love that! Yeah. So, particularly as the highest-paid person is probably not in touch with the front line at all. So, liberate instruction: the 33 methods that give everybody an equal voice, and this is this is a key part of what we've been teaching on those three courses in the NHS. We we. We we teach them in full day workshops where you get eight or nine of them, or, or two hour sessions where you get where you get four of them. And just to give you a simple example, any of your listeners can try this. It's called one two four all. Okay, and so you pose a prompt or a question in your in your meeting, and you spend one minute in private reflection, two minutes in pairs, four minutes in fours before you come together. And what that means is everybody has a chance to talk about it. If people weren't quite sure of their thinking, they i have got a good, a good sense of whether other people think it's a good idea. And, and then you come back together and you might put it all in chat or you might put it on a document or you might just talk about it. But that's one very simple way to give everybody an equal voice. So that's one of the liberating structures. There's lots more. And this is about three years ago. I posted somewhere on LinkedIn. God, our meet our clients have so many meetings Can they think of a way to improve them and. Somebody responded with, yeah, have you heard of Liberating Structures? And they make a real difference. We've got, we've got some NHS trusts that are using them throughout at, at the moment. And it's it, meaning that it's not the loudest people that get, to, that get to have the decisions. It's everybody gets to think about it. So Liberating Structures is something I absolutely love and adore. And the other stuff, we, we have our four-day, as I said, the four-day leadership program which is how, if you haven't got 20 months, you, you can just do it over four months. And we've also, this year, started a brave leadership program, which my colleagues Kathy and Nikki are doing for women. So what, what does women's leadership look like? So there's all sorts of exciting things things going on, as well as all the old Excel training that, we, that we've that we been doing for 25 years.
0: So you, st- you still do the stuff that you started off with at Happy?
1: We still do that. We still do that. Amazing. Not many people on Word or Access, but it's still... Excel is still something that people need to learn
0: On I, I might register I'm rubbish with Excel. I avoid it like the plague Oh you yeah.
1: must you must register yeah because um, at the moment it's all online from September we hope that then we had some classroom at the moment, but mainly it''s 90 percent online, and we make them truly engaging.
0: That, that's some really, really brilliant initiatives. I really like the ones about liberating structures there, which I've never heard of the concept, but I'll definitely be checking that out because that's one thing I, I do a lot of meeting and workshop facilitation, not just stuff that I deliver, but I can b- get brought in to, to help clients. And you're right. It's always, it's often the, the two, three people in the room that take the entire attention and I'm sure I can learn a lot from that, from, from the liberating structures and things. And
1: nowadays what the others do is do you just go off and do their email? Because you know they're online and and I, you, there's no way you can do your email during a liberating church's event because you have, you're involved
0: Yeah, well that's the thing. we've got so many meetings that we've got meeting after meeting after meeting which is when do we actually find time to work, and which meetings are important There's one thing that I literally a few days ago put on LinkedIn and to daring people in their organizations to try this and give your people in in the in the organization the power for one week to say no to an internal meeting and just say could you send me the summary please and see what happens (laughs) first of all how many people take that advantage which will be uh, indicative of how psychologically safe they feel to do that first of all second of all it's for the organisers, people who host these meetings, it might be a bit of a scary lesson because they might find out that a lot of people are actually requesting. But if that's what needs to happen, that's what needs to happen because that will just bring to the to the forth, forefront that you know you are having meetings that they have no purpose. Just get rid of them.
1: And what response did you get?
0: People were shocked and going, fantastic idea. Love that. But a lot of organisations go in, no, wouldn't work in my organisations. Classic response.
1: <laughs> and have any of them done it?
0: I haven't haven't heard back. It was literally two or three days ago. So I will be checking with people whether they, they will be will be doing that for sure, because I'd love to a learn.
1: Bit. One one thing I, I love. We've come from Bruce Daisy who was also speaking at our conference and used to be vice president of Twitter. Monk Mode Morning. The idea of monk mode morning is at least two or three days a week, have no meetings and no email before eleven. Just get stuff done. So I would recommend that to your to, to your readers. It's it's worked brilliantly for me. the the other The
0: other thing that I used to do in my project management days, it works far better in real life than it does on in virtual set, settings. Is I would do my best to ho- to have meetings in rooms where there were no chairs, so people can sit and <laughs> get comfortable. And you know what? Surprisingly productive and brief meetings happen then.
1: Very good, very good. That, that's that's a good one. So
0: yeah. definitely, definitely. If you if you if you if you're back in the offices, then for sure something something to try. Anyway, I'm I'm gonna try and wrap this up. But what the one question that oh. I'd really like to ask you, because you're the type of person that definitely has gone through a lot in the in the last twenty thirty years. You've you've kind of got been on the journey. I'm really curious. What do you think is kind of the future of our organizations and company cultures. And I'm specifically forming this as a very broad question because I, I'd I'd like to leave it entirely up to you. What is the future of company cultures, the importance of and how do organizations kind of develop and what do we need to do? What do you think that looks like what would what would you like it to look like in in I know what
1: I'd like it to look like. Whether it will get there, I, I don't know. I mean I want I, my our aim is that a happy workplace is the norm and not the exception. That's what we want. And so we, we, we hope there will be organizations based on trust and freedom where people have the autonomy to decide for themselves, where people are doing what they're good at, where the managers coach them. And hopefully there'll be a good range of self-managing organizations because the examples like Vietzorg just are so, so whirled away from anything else out there. You know, I mean, I'm, I'm sure, you know, the Dutch care organization, but they have 15,000 staff and no managers. And As a result, their overheads are eight percent rather than thirty percent. They they people people there have told me they. I feel like I got my vocation back because I'm able to decide decide what I do. And they all work in teams of of ten to twelve, and they don't need managers. That's the that for me is is, is the future of work, and it's spreading, and hopefully it will spread faster.
0: I've got absolutely nothing to add to that, and um, it's actually so. Delighting that, to, to hear you say that, that you kind of, you want this to become the the norm rather than the exception. That's kind of the mission that I've got this podcast, that I want to see organizations <laughs> that are people focused, that they put their people ahead of their numbers and showcasing organizations <laughs> yeah, who absolutely. do that, like for example, Redico in the industry, people on the other side who help other organizations to do that. That's who I want to showcase because I want these organizations to become the the norm rather than the exception. That type of approach to become the norm rather than the exception that is at the moment. To say it was an absolute joy having a chat with you would be just the grossest of understatements. It's it's fascinating to speak to people like yourself, Henry, who who have been through that, continue doing that and have that belief. Because I think if we are to undo and, and change the practices that we've been using for the past 30, 40 years, we need more of that. And I think it's kind of in our responsibility to to do Mm -hmm. that now so we build these organizations for the future generations for them to be better so that we create that shift and we have this fantastic opportunity to do that and i'm so grateful for 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 your time i'm so grateful for for sharing your notes and as i say it's been an absolute delight talking to you and there's something that's always missing and to you thank you very much henry there's there's something that's always missing from uh, from the podcast that i can see you the listeners cannot, they can only hear you. And what I've, one thing I've been saying is that Henry has such a lovely energy about him. He's sitting here, he's sitting there in his lovely, colorful uh, shirt full of flowers. And it's just with the biggest beaming smile on, on his face. So just to bring you uh, what I've been experiencing with the last hour and a half, and I'm hoping that at least half of this energy comes through on, on just the audio without the video. It's been an absolute pleasure. Henry, yet again, thank you very much.
1: A pleasure. Thank you very much, Le.
0: Before you take off, I've got a huge favour to ask. If you found the episode and this podcast of value, please subscribe, rate, and give us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you might be listening to it. It will help grow the audience, which is so, so important, for a podcast in its early days as this one. You can find show notes for this and previous episodes on human.pm forward slash wegotthis.
1: That's all one word. Until next time.